Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery and I'm excited to have Joyce Zankre, who's a CEO and co-founder of Alaris Global. Uh, Joyce was previously the first employee and head of sales for Human Interest, a Silicon Valley-based financial services technology company. And prior to that, she worked for the president of Microsoft Asia Pacific in Singapore as a regional manager for Groupon China and for McKinsey. Mm-hmm. A big thanks to Shruti Kapoor for the introduction. Welcome to the show, Joyce. Thank you so much, Rohit. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So um, you know, you you have a have a, a you know uh, create uh, a resume. You you've done your bachelor's from Harvard. Uh, you, know, you went to Stanford, then you you went to McKinsey. Uh, and your early employee at Human Interest. What got you interested in this in this crazy world of startups? I think it was uh, just kind of natural or organic. I saw a lot of problems that I was facing, especially when I was doing global expansion and building teams abroad. And I had actually many friends um, who are based overseas, in particular in India and China, who found it really difficult to expand to the US. And so naturally, I was starting to look for solutions to help with these problems. And I didn't really find any. And so I realized if you can't buy it, then you should just build it. Interesting. And and how, how, how did you get into human interest? Yeah, so human interest at the time was called Captain 401. I was the first employee there. And it really resonated with me because it was a fintech product that was solving a real world solution. uh, Sorry, a real world problem, um, which is that many Americans actually do not have enough savings for their retirement. And financial security is something that because of the way that US benefits are structured is sometimes left up to employers to provide. So a lot of small businesses don't have the wherewithal to offer a 401k. So I thought it was, you know, a really interesting product and very interesting um, solution to a big problem that I was aware of because I'd worked before in uh, the Department of Labor and also in other government institutions that witnessed this problem. So I um, joined the founders as the first employee, and I actually was connected to the CEO because we went to college together and we had a lot of mutual friends. So it was very organic. Interesting. And, you know, I'm interested uh, yeah, about this because uh, you're into sales and I've been I spent a lot, uh, 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 you know, career in business development, partnerships, and sales. And you know, I, I'm, I always wonder, uh, you know, who should build the sales playbook, especially in an early stage startup. Who's responsible? Is it the sales leader, or do you think the CEO is responsible for building the sales playbook? Oh, yeah, I definitely think it needs to be the CEO or at least one of the founders, um, if possible. But if not one of the founders, then a founding team member. Um, I suppose I was kind of in that position in the, in the past. But usually it needs to be someone who really has the the founder mentality, who is looking to grow the company, who can uh, be thoughtful, strategic, experiment, and also align a lot of internal stakeholders from product team to the finance team, if there is even a finance team. So uh, I would say that what I usually coach a lot of the founders we work with on GTM is that it should be founder-led selling. You are the only one who can make the decision, or you could authorize someone, again, an early employee to uh, make those decisions, but usually it has to be the founders. You have to know what works, what doesn't, and you can strategically decide what trade-offs are inherent in you know the ICP that you would eventually start to work with. Hmm, got it. Got it. And uh, and you know what what made you start um, Alaris? I started Alaris from you know just simply seeing that there was a need in the market. It is 
uh, so challenging. A go-to-market is challenging for everyone. Um, it arguably is what makes or breaks a company. You can have the best product in the world, but if no one's buying from you, no one knows about you, then uh, then it's very difficult to 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 have a viable business. And so, um, one of the realizations I had when I was expanding American companies overseas is it's very manual, it's very expensive, and it's very challenging. And in the course of working overseas, I actually had many friends who are based in, uh, you know, Nairobi, Kenya, or Singapore, or in Bangalore, and they were really struggling to. Um, expand overseas, and it was actually ten times harder for them. And I always, I already thought it was hard as an American setting up, you know, a branch office or a sales and local sales and marketing team in in other markets. I saw that it was much harder for them because, in addition to the time zones and the legal and the compliance and all the same things that I faced, um, usually it, they had a branding and credibility issue. And so it was something that really resonated with me. It didn't strike me as very fair. Why should you be judged differently because of your country of origin or because of the passport that you held? Um, but that was just the reality in, in business. And I said, well, you know, we could do something about this. And also it's actually very possible just as Americans will hire remote workers in Asia. Why can't Asian companies hire American salespeople to represent them? And this could be done remotely. So you don't even have to physically fly to the US and set up an office in order to start transacting and doing business with uh, global clients. Yeah, interesting. And, uh, you know, you mentioned that, you know, Americans, uh, if, if they uh, if they want to launch in, in, say, India or China, they would hire somebody in remote work. But, uh, uh, and, you know, foreign companies also want American talent. But uh, how do you how do you bridge the gap? Uh, how do you how do you look at the supply? Uh, and, and demand in the, in the marketplace? What comes first when you're trying to build? Yeah, well, this reminds me of, um, you know, some of those great books. I think there's like the cold start problem and the hard things about hard things or there's some, you know, nice business books on the topics of like marketplaces and building things up at the beginning. Um, for two-sided marketplaces like ours, there is the chicken and egg problem. And you need both to make it successful. Obviously, sometimes the pendulum swings one way or the other. It feels like, oh, you have too much demand, not enough supply, or then the reverse very quickly can happen. But we identified that um, just philosophically, we wanted the best supply on the market because we wanted to make sure that these uh, American salespeople and go-to-market talent and revenue leaders looking for jobs or just being open to new opportunities wouldn't be turned away because there was a you know, a fee that they had to pay because there might be adverse selection. It might either be those who are, you know, most desperate to get a job that were willing to pay to get one or those who, for whatever reason, you know, perhaps just knew us already, which was a very limited pool at the time because as a startup, not many people know you. So we made it free for the supply to join and made sure that we got very good supply. And then we turned to the demand and looked at how can we get, you know, the best demand on the platform. And we do charge the companies. Um, so it was a combination of dealing with building out our own go-to-market process in many countries simultaneously and testing out what worked through a combination of PR, local brand building, but mostly um, in the early days, like with any startup, referrals and channel partnerships with people who know you and trust you and can vouch for your integrity and your credibility. Because even if you have a great network and great reputation, let's say in San Francisco among a certain cohort of people, maybe that reputation does not transcend to London or to Tel Aviv. And so how can you get that, uh, replicate that, that reputation? Well, you start by leveraging those that you know and who know you and who trust you and then working from there. 
Correct. And, and uh, you know, obviously, when, you, when you're trying to build, you're always looking uh, at your first few clients. How do you manage to get your, you know, first big client uh, uh, overseas? It was through personal connections and referrals, like I alluded to. The people who had no, already knew, uh, knew me from reputation because we either worked together or um, they were friends, they were willing to take a risk and to trust that you know, whatever happened, I would do the right thing by them. Um, and I think that's that that makes me, you know, incredibly lucky and fortunate to have had that network overseas. Because I think part of the inherent problem that we're trying to solve is when you're doing cross-border business or business totally outside of your network, comfort zone, reputational sphere of influence, um, it's incredibly hard because you really need to build from scratch. Like it's almost like launching a whole new startup again and again and again, every single new market you're in. And the best thing you can do is try to uh, build a network. And if you have an existing network, that's kind of the seed of your own startup and your own customer base. And then from there you can grow. Today I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash social pilot to get a 14-day free trial. Got it. And, and are, you, are you competing with, uh, with the deal uh, and the oyster uh, of the world where, you know, they... Uh, they help you, uh, 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 it makes them easier for them to hire people uh, remotely. Uh, is this something that you're also looking into get, uh, getting to that particular sector? We don't compete at all. Um, and also, you forgot to mention, in addition to Deal and Oyster, there's globalization partners, Papaya Global, Remote, Multiplier, Panther. Um, there's quite a number of venture-funded companies that have raised uh, collectively billions of dollars of funding to tackle this space. It shows how big of a space it is and how necessary and I suppose COVID accelerated the trend of remote work is and has been. Um, we're very complimentary to them. We actually partner with quite a few of those companies because they offer the payroll product, but we offer what is, you know, what what is very, very valuable for many of our customers, which is actually the talent marketplace of revenue leaders. If you don't have a revenue leader working for you, why do you need a payroll? So mm -hmm. in many ways, we're very complimentary. Um, and it's not easy to build up this two-sided marketplace because sometimes you run the risk of having something that could um, seem almost lower quality. And that's not what we wanted. We wanted something where it's, uh, you, you had mentioned before, you know, we talked earlier about Pavilion, yeah. Um, prior to this podcast recording. So there are communities like Pavilion and others with fantastic revenue leaders. You want to maintain a high caliber. And part of the reason our caliber can remain high is because we do offer a very unique value proposition. Um, you can think of us almost as like angel lists for international expansion, expansion roles. Mm -hmm. People can get jobs where they can become the country manager or head of growth for a future unicorn. And what's really unique about this is that these unicorns or future unicorns are headquartered totally outside of the U.S. And so they really empower the revenue leaders to be country managers, like head of North America sales or, you know, senior account executive, but the first few employees and the founding team members in the U.S. And like I said, starting in a new country is just like launching another startup. So there's something very powerful about the value proposition for the supply side, which is why I think we still maintain a really high level of talent quality. 
um, because it's just unique. There's no other platform like us right now. Hmm. Interesting. You, you mentioned uh, it's like the angel list for international expansion. And, uh, you know, I wanted to talk about how the Googles and the Apples would want their employees to work full time. Uh, maybe not Google, but Tesla and the Apple, you know, where, where, the, where the CEOs have said that, you know, uh, remote work is great, but you want to build a world-class company, you need to, you need to work uh, with, your, with your employees face-to-face. What, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think you can still build a world-class company uh, with, with remote talent? Yes. Well, I would frame it this way. We call it remote talent, but no one is truly remote. Even though I work with most of my clients virtually, um, you know, it's TechCrunch Disrupt this week. I'll be meeting some of them in person Mm -hmm. because they'll fly to San Francisco where I live to attend the conference and I'll be at the conference too. And then in the future, when I go to Bangalore, then I'll definitely meet up with them. So I think if you can augment the efficiency of working from anywhere, again, working from home is almost a misnomer, work from anywhere. Um, have the ability to bring your workstation with you in the form of a handheld device or a laptop, and you can plug into Wi-Fi and you can be productive um, in any time zone at all times. I think it I, I think it can be done. And also, I understand why Tesla and Apple would sometimes require people to be in person. They're working with hardware. You know, it's very hard to completely build a car remotely. Um, and have robots do everything. So there are use cases where in-person makes sense, but for most of our clients, they are digital companies. They are B2B SaaS companies, they're health tech, they're FinTech. Um, Most of their work is already done on computers and virtually or in the cloud anyway. In-person is good for connection, feeling, you know, connectedness and empathy with your team, feeling like uh, almost camaraderie. So that's why we do team retreats and offsites. And we encourage companies to do that And the final point I would make on this is keep in mind, if you're an American company, um, and I used to work for Microsoft APAC, so the headquarter is not APAC, the headquarter is in the US. So the APAC HQ, which is in Singapore, is already quote unquote remote from Redmond, Washington. But that's okay because you have conference calls, you have the ability to fly in for team meetings, but the team in Asia and the team in the US is already inherently working remotely from each other. And so that's why global expansion, in my mind, and in the eyes of our clients is very different from just remote work. This is not like a commodity, offshore, cheap person that they're trying to hire in the US. This is a valuable central part of their team. And the person has to be in the US because that's where the customer base is. But the HQ and the product team might be in another country. And then perhaps the uh, advertising team or the design team will be still in another country and perhaps customer success will be still in another country. So every geography, every location, every um, hybrid model is best fit for the needs of the company, the time zones of the clients and the cultural affinity and necessity of what it takes to do business. Mm, got it. Interesting. And, and what, what is the business model? Uh, do you, do you work? Uh, do you make money from uh, from fees for uh, for from from the companies who become uh, you know partners on your marketplace, or you know how, how does it really work? Exactly. We only charge the companies. Um, we do not charge the candidates, and so and we have a couple of um, you know we have a couple of referral partners, but by and large we just pass on the referral discount to the the companies to say, you know, for example, we work with a lot of VCs and they'll refer us their portfolio companies. Well, the VCs are financially 
um, they they are financially incentivized to want their portfolio companies to be able to expand their revenue and expand globally successfully. So we don't have to pay the VCs for those referrals. But you know, as a gesture of gratitude, and also because it's win-win for everyone, we'll pass along what we would have, let's say, otherwise paid in a referral bonus. We'll pass it along in the form of a discount to the portfolio company. So the companies have, um, you know, it's kind of a no-brainer for them to test out our platform and to sign up. And then if they do well, and if we help accelerate their growth and global expansion, then that's great for the VCs who originally referred them. Got it. And, and Josh, you've been you've been able to, you know, uh, create a great team and have had great and you know set of VCs are backing you. Um, how do you how do you create a environment of safety where you know people feel they can be honest and transparent uh, when they deal with each other? I think this is always a really interesting challenge, especially when you deal with diverse teams. And I, when I talk about diversity, I mean cultural differences. There are some team members who uh, we, we have team members of different backgrounds, different gender, different sexual orientation, different uh, religions, nationalities. I do think it's important for people to, um, we believe in kind of transparency, but we also believe in being empathetic. And because we work with clients in other cultures, we can understand that some people are introverts and some are extroverts. Some people are very open with their feedback and others are more reticent. Um, I think it's trying to create a culture and an environment of just awareness of others and giving them the space to voice their opinions and their perspectives. But it, but it isn't easy. And especially in a remote environment, <clears throat> I think this is perhaps one of the biggest downsides of fully remote, which is why we try to emphasize having team retreats where we get to meet each other and connect as people and have more of the non-Zoom, non-work-related um, side conversations that are much better facilitated in person because uh, there is a bit of Zoom fatigue. We actually tried, and we sometimes still do, like um, sort of team events like team online game nights or water cooler talks like virtual water coolers or uh, sort of Slack has these donut integrations where you can do one-on-one kind of pre-scheduled coffee chats. Um, and we also had language tables so people could practice their foreign languages if they wanted to in, in virtual settings. So some of those are really fun and they work, but sometimes Zoom fatigue is real and having yet another scheduled meeting on your calendar, even if it's meant to be a fun meeting can feel a little bit taxing. So it also is being aware of like making sure to honor people's vacation days, um, making sure to encourage time off and then to find connectedness in other avenues. Mm, got it. And, uh, and how do you, how do you look at conducting and you know, executing on uh, the performance reviews for be it for the product team or the sales team or the marketing? I think for sales, it's much more straightforward. Yeah. Although this does tie back to the original question of, um, you know, kind of founder-led selling. It is important for startups to be aware that for sales teams, it's important to have revenue targets and it's important to have compensation that is based on a percentage of uh, earnings or, you know, essentially commission. But it's also important to be flexible and to adapt with the re- market realities because, you know, a very large, well-oiled machine of a sales, you know, a, a sales company with a fully automated, fully repeatable, replicable sales process will be able to consistently say, you know, here's your base, here's your OTE. This is the expectation for you to achieve your OTE. And then we expect that X percent of you will like achieve it. X percent will fall short. And this is kind of the, you know, performance improvement plan. If you don't hit your um, quota, like, you know, after a consecutive two or three uh, months or however many cycles, sales cycles. 
for a startup, you don't have a luxury of that. You generally still have performance-based commission and you have um, what you hope you know, you hope will be the the best and fairest performance structure, but it might not be the case. So we um, have adapted to it. Uh, of course, it's still uncontroversial. Like, how many deals did you bring in? How many deals did you close? How much revenue did you generate? But it's also important to note that, okay, sometimes the revenue wasn't generated, not because this person didn't work hard and because they didn't follow all the instructions. It might've just been, we were working with the wrong customers. And that is sometimes a tough pill to swallow, but it's something early stage companies that are still figuring out what the ICP looks like has to come to terms with. And then, um, and so I think that's also important to have like a, an honest discussion about how can we coach team members to help them improve. And then in areas where truly there isn't really um, room for that individual's performance per se, but perhaps a company strategically needs to understand that we're expending more resources going down certain uh, strategic directions with the growth team or the sales team then then might make sense. And so how can we as a company recalibrate if all salespeople who are trying to go after a certain market are failing to meet their um, you know their quota, then that's a really good sign. So I think iteration, being open-minded and being very humble about learning is probably the name of the game for startups. Um, and even later on, even when you're a well-oiled machine, I do think, it's important to take in feedback, but perhaps it's just less dynamic and less subject to change at that point. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions, and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. What, what do you think is uh, is the best way to communicate with your team? And, and does it change over time, especially when you are a scrappy startup, but then you start building up, uh, you know, what are the different communication channels that you have used? That's also a constant learning. I mean, it's not even just communication channels. We are even seeing, and we see this all the time with our clients, even figuring out what time and cadence to speak is challenging. So um, when we work with Europe, when we, we have a sizable team in Asia now, um, there is no good time zone. <laughs> yeah. because, you know, at this point, many members of our team have families and young children. And so in the evenings, it's family time, but in the morning, it's also family time. And those are usually the only hours, especially also since in the US, we have Pacific time zone, central time zone, Eastern time zone. So, um, you know, just as a quick example, like we have decided that um, at least one of our um, sort of US Asia team time meeting times will be 7.30 a.m. Pacific, which is still kind of cuts into family time for West Coast, but it's already 10.30 a.m. East Coast time and it's already 8 p.m. IST or, uh, you know, it's it's already um, 10.30 p.m. <laughs> in Beijing and Singapore. So uh, like I said, there isn't necessarily a really great time, but I do think it's important to have at least, you know, it depends on every company, but for us, it's important to have at least one sort of all all hands sort of meeting at the beginning of the week. And keep in mind, it's already Monday evening. So it's not technically the be very beginning of the week for the Asia team, but having the US team have meetings on Sunday nights and cutting consistently into personal time then also didn't seem appropriate. So even that decision was difficult to sort of reach consensus around. Everyone has to compromise a little bit. Um, and then we try to do as much as we can asynchronous communication. So that's why 
having a CRM, having very, very updated notes, having recordings of calls, having um, um, like, you know, asynchronous communication through our own product, uh, through even Slack, having some Slack messages um, has been quite important in, in email as well. So communication skills and empathy become even more valuable when you deal with these different time zones. Because you can't ask someone a question directly. Maybe you're working on a deal and then it's right now, you know, for example, it's 2 p.m. Pacific time. Well, I know that this is 2.30 a.m. IST. So if I had a question for my team in India, it would be inappropriate for me to send them a Slack or WhatsApp message right now because maybe their notifications would wake them up and that's just not something I want to do to them. So I'll just sort of have to hold it in, maybe log it away. Or sometimes I'd like to use the send later feature in email. I'll put in an email I'll send it later and set it for, you know, 8 p.m. my time. So it pops up in their inbox at 8.30 a.m. So then it's a more appropriate time for them to kind of look at the emails and not feel stressed out that they're getting, you know, emails from me at 2 (laughs) a.m. Got it. Super interesting. Uh, And, uh, you know, you talked about uh, decision-making. How do you approach decision-making frameworks? And, And how do you, you know, especially in a startup, how do you balance the speed versus the quality of decision? That's something which I... Still struggle, even though I've been into startups for a long time. Me too. I mean, Rohit, I'm sure we could have a lot of uh, a lot of discussions about how we would do this. I don't think that I necessarily have a perfect solution for it, but I do think uh, one one of the mantras that we have too is like be proactive and have a bias for action. So um, it's very easy to over intellectualize, go to market and sales and growth. But until you do it, it's all theoretical. And theory doesn't, doesn't generate ARR. Yeah. You have to actually execute. And so we um, do try to have kind of the North Star of our strategy and what we're doing. It helps too that we understand now at this point, product market fit, who our customers are and how to be focused. And um, there will be times in which something comes up where it might be a distraction. And I think you know, ultimately it's for the team to discuss together and then for whoever, you know, and there might be an escalation of decision-making and for me as a CEO to ultimately decide. But right now I think we're in the phase where it's about execution, especially because we are in a, you know, tricky financial market. A lot of economists talk about a looming or impending recession. And I think that enforces a lot of discipline because when you know that you might not have the luxury of running a lot of experiments in the short term and kind of taking big bets that burn a lot of cash and might not end up in anything. Well, then if everyone's aligned on the fact that you need to just uh, extend run runway or you need to just generate as much revenue and um, you know net profits as possible, then it makes decision-making a bit easier. You can kind of cut out a lot of the noise. But in the future, you don't want to forever just be focused on cash because just a cash generating business might not be the highest growth business. There's actually a uh, a law of, I think a power law of 40, as they call it, the trade-off between EBITDA and uh, month over month growth percentages. So you don't want to forever be trapped in that, in the path of trying to generate or maximize returns without thinking of investment towards the future, especially on the product side and R&D side. So um, I'd imagine that once we get past this financial period, then we'll reinvest a lot more in the R&D and product side. But right now we're really focused on revenue generation and growth. Hmm, got it. Interesting. And uh, and what advice you to give to founders uh, who are listening to the podcast? And uh, how how do you raise uh, today in this you know challenging market conditions? 
It's definitely still possible to raise. So uh, to, if it makes uh, the founders listening feel better, um, there is definitely dry powder out there. And if you think about it this way, investors don't make money from sitting on the money. They make money through deploying capital. And if they don't deploy the capital within the time horizon that they're, you know, they raise from LPs, then they have to give the money back. So they're definitely not going to do that. Right now, it's a little bit of a wait and see game, but then a lot of investors are still um, investing. And I think as a founder, just be aware of how much money you need. Um, also be aware that perhaps the terms won't be as favorable right now as they might be later. But if you need the cash now, and that's the only way to survive. It's still better to ensure the survival of your company than just to ensure that you get better terms, or not even ensure, just to hope that you get better terms later, because maybe you'll even get worse terms in a few months, and maybe the markets will turn around. But then on the flip side, if you're a founder who has ample run rate and you don't need to fundraise, then don't do it. It's a distraction. It's a waste of time. It might end up not helping you achieve your ends and you might end up feeling kind of frustrated with the whole process. So you can save yourself some agony. If you can still hold out for another two years, then they usually say no need to fundraise. But if you have, you know, let's say less than six months of run rate, then you certainly should right now, even if the conditions are less favorable, but um, there's definitely capital out there. Just be prepared to um, perhaps either have a down round, a flat round, or something that might not seem as favorable, but in the long run, um, it's about, I mean, it's a marathon, not a sprint in the long run. If you want to build a really successful company, then you will find a way to make it work. And everything just needs survival right now is, is the mantra. Mm, got it. And uh, especially when it comes to, to raising funds, you know, are, are there any uh, terms which uh, founders should optimize for and should not optimize for in your view? I think it really depends. Some founders are more dilution sensitive. Some are more, um, you know, want more control of the board sensitive. Some actually welcome investors onto their board because they think it's a good indication that the investor will be really value add as opposed to see this as kind of a micro check and, you know, sort of a castaway and not spend time on it. So I think founders should be um, really uh, quite open-minded about it, but I would say the, the relationship between the investor and the founder is really important. Find people who believe in you Find people who you trust and who trust you in turn, and you really think can help you. Um, I that to me is really important. And I think if you trust them, and you know they have your best intentions in mind, of course they're still going to try to get a good deal. I mean, they're in the business to make money, but you know, be wary of investors who try to put in these predatory terms in the term sheets. If they are fair, even if the valuation is a bit lower than you'd like to see then that is a good sign. But if they put in a lot of these caveats, a lot of side letters, a lot of other um, terms that, that just don't sit well with you, then kind of trust that instinct and look, look into it a bit further before you sign that term sheet. Hmm, got it. Interesting. And uh, I quickly want to the top three. What's your favorite business book? I there are a lot of really good ones out there. I think I already mentioned uh, hard things about hard things and and um, uh, you know uh, the cold start problem. But how to win friends and influence people I think is really great. Also, never eat alone. Those are books that are obviously a lot more about interpersonal skills. But I think um, especially as you become a leader of an ever larger and more complex organization or an executive at a bigger company, most of your job really is on the interpersonal side. You're no longer in the weeds of doing technical things as much on the day-to-day, um, whether that means technical on the business side of like selling individual deals or technical on the product side of you know writing lines of code. It's really about 
managing teams, influencing others, and winning their trust. Got it. Uh, we'll put it down in the show notes. And, uh, you know, if you could go back in time when you started LRS, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Yeah, I I think, you know, in the early days, I think I was trying to be a little bit of everything to everyone, which is not the answer. I probably should have focused a little earlier. But that being said, I'm glad I tested out a lot of hypotheses. I feel like I learned a lot, but I think I should have been okay. And this is still something I remind myself. It's okay to uh, not be everything to everyone. It's okay to say, no, we're not a good fit. And no, I'm sorry. I don't think we can work together Um, because you can preserve your time and your energy for those customers and those partners that you can really, really do a good job working with. And that will matter so much more than trying to be um, the partner to a hundred different people and having each of them have a mediocre experience, even just like one very, very satisfied customer is worth more than, than that. Got it. And do you have any favorite online tools, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? I actually really like HubSpot. I um, have been impressed. I mean, I'm just so impressed by how even when you look at their growth trajectory and how they've managed to become one of the market leaders and finding this niche and first being seen as kind of a Salesforce copycat or lookalike to being this full suite of solutions. Um, I mentioned a couple of HubSpot features earlier, like the send later feature or even the calendar links. I just feel like so much of HubSpot includes um, apps that I no longer even need to use. Like I don't need to use Calendly anymore because I have it. I don't need to use the boomerang feature. Um, so it, it's just been very easy. And because the team is so uh, is in so many different time zones, I go to HubSpot to look at all the activity and all the meeting notes very consistently for for our the deals that we're working on. And I like the fact that I can see, you know, at every time zone, there's someone kind of logging things and it gives me a good sense of activity and what's going on. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think HubSpot has been also one of my favorite tools. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, and Joyce, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about this? Sure. Uh, well, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, you'll find me with uh, Alaris, A-L-A-R-I-S-S, or reach out through um, Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Joyce, uh, Y-A-N-Z-H-A-N-G. So Joyce Yan Zhang. Or um, we also have an Alaris LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram and a bunch of accounts. So it's always at Alaris or at Alaris Global. Awesome. Put that in the show notes. Um, Joyce, thank you so much for taking our time speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Same. Thank you so much, Rohit. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com. Dot com.